Thank you for being part of the Becker's Orthopedic Spine and ASC virtual event. I'm Laura Deirda, an editor at Becker's Healthcare, and today I'm privileged to have an expert panel and we'll be discussing orthopedic supergroups, private equity and orthopedics, and more. Orthopedic practices are joining together to leverage economies of scale and maintain independence, especially as costs rise and uncertainty has been at an all-time high during the pandemic. Private equity investors are also eyeing orthopedics as a huge opportunity as the number of surgeries is set to increase in the next 10 years and ASCs could play a crucial role in healthcare ecosystem in the future. Joining me on my panel today is Dr. Michael Redler, an orthopedic surgeon at Connecticut Orthopedics, Dr. Adam Brueggemann, Chief Executive Officer and Surgeon at Texas Spine Care Center, and Dr. Vladimir Sinkov, a spine surgeon at Sinkov Spine Center. We have a fantastic discussion planned for you today, but before we dive in to the questions, I wanna make sure that the panelists can introduce themselves. Dr. Redler, let's start with you. Thanks, Laura. I'm Michael Redler. I'm an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine and upper extremity surgery in Connecticut. Um, I also am an assistant visiting clinical professor at University of Virginia and an assistant clinical professor at the Frank Netter School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. And glad to be with you today. It's a pleasure, Dr. Redler. Now, Dr. Sinkov, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as well? Uh, thank you, Laura. Um, my name is Vladimir Sinkov. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. I've been in practice for about 11 years, uh, was part of large practices for most of the time. About two years ago, I decided to open my own solo practice uh, together with my wife, and we're running it together and um, never look back. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to have your perspective here today. And Dr. Brueggemann, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you as well before we dive into the questions. Sure. I'm Adam Brueggemann, also orthopedic surgeon, uh, spine surgery. Uh, I'm a former president of Texas Orthopedic Association, sit on the board of counselors for the uh, AAOS and the Healthcare Systems Committee, uh, and also serve as CMO for uh, two companies. Uh, one is a large healthcare system in Texas, the other uh, a group that uh, participates in clinically integrated networks. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about this and, and converse with my colleagues about it. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in. And Dr. Brueggemann, I want to start with you. We're seeing more and more of these supergroups. A few of them have popped up in Texas recently, as well as other places across the U.S., groups with 70, 80, 100 plus orthopedic and spine surgeons, which is really fascinating to see. Do you think this trend is good for orthopedics and sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to look at why we're here. Uh, and I, and if, knowing both the large uh, groups that have formed here in Texas, the, the reason is because of pressures from insurance contract. I, I think that groups are realizing quickly that uh, even the largest groups that banded together to, to form one of the super groups in Texas were not big enough to really stand up and be able to adequately negotiate their contracts. And so... Uh, as a group, uh, there's a few things that are benefits. One is ability to contract with insurance companies, but the other is the ability to go to larger employers and become a more direct-to-employer uh, model, capturing a larger percentage of the population. So I, I think this is uh, putting the power back in the hands of several of the uh, surgeons in those larger groups. The question is really in the details of how it's done, who maintains control, who runs that practice, as to whether or not this will be a long-term good plan. Got it, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to hear, you know, the different groups that um, the orthopedic practices are looking to contract with, not only, you know, the traditional ones, but also looking at some of the large employers. Do you see that as a, a trend that will continue to expand and become more robust? 
mean, certainly we see employers more interested in trying to get control of what they call their musculoskeletal spend, meaning the spend on general orthopedics, spine, physical therapy, injections. And this has become a large component of what they spend their health insurance dollars on. And as larger employers are 100% responsible for that dollar amount, they don't pay premiums. They actually pay the amount paid. Uh, they're looking for quality organizations that can provide care to their employees and get them back to work faster, but also at potentially a cheaper price. Thank you so much for going through that. Now, Dr. Sinkoff, at the other end of the spectrum, you have a, a solo practice. Um, what is your perception of some of these big, just gigantic groups of, of specialists? And, um, you know, does that make it harder for you at all as a solo surgeon? Um. I mean, I, I have a little bit of perspective on both. I started with a large group. The group that I joined straight out of fellowship was uh, 18 partners, and I was one of them. And um, the when I joined the group, they just merged one 10 uh, partner group, another, <clears throat> excuse me, eight uh, partner group joined together. And basically their reasoning for that was uh, better ability to negotiate uh, better insurance contracts. And uh, certainly was understandable. Um, the problem with the overall trend and the reason why we see so much more consolidation now than we would have uh, 10 or especially 20 years ago is the reimbursements are declining and the complexity of uh, um, satisfying all the requirements of running the uh, practicing medicine, both by Medicare and by uh, private payers is getting more complex. So surgeons feel like they're compelled to uh, kind of band together to hopefully lower the overhead of just, you know, being compliant with those things and to increase their negotiating power. Um, my kind of perspective on that and the reason why I kind of decided to go completely different direction is that it is a little bit of a, not a little bit, but it's technically a race to the bottom where um, unlike most professionals uh, in other areas in the United States and around the world, we're accepting lower and lower pay for work done, um, the only way to maintain the same level of uh, revenue as you do that is to increase the volume, which is another thing that larger practices will be a lot more successful at to maintain larger volume of patients. Um, to me, it feels that you know the more patients I see, the less quality I can provide per patient. So I decided to go the other way and um, uh, limit how many patients I see so I can spend more time with them. Obviously, it comes that comes at a price of how do I handle overhead and uh, how do I negotiate with insurances. Uh, and that's where basically I decided instead of uh, trying to compete with larger practices, which I never can, they can see patients for cheaper than I can. I'm basically taking myself out of insurance practice. I'm uh, treating patients directly um, and you know getting paid from them directly instead of going through insurance companies. Got it. Absolutely. So you decided to buck that trend and um, has it been successful for you in terms of um, gaining business and, um, you know, growing momentum? Absolutely. And uh, the practice we opened doors in uh, June of 2020 and uh, have been basically busy. My schedule is full. I'm booking out a couple of months right now on average. Oh, wow. What a time to start, right? During the it pandemic. Was, it was interesting. Yes. <laughs> But you know the, the the trick is the the um the biggest way in my opinion to do it is to be very small, very nimble. Basically, my practice is myself. My wife is a practice manager, biller, and pretty much everything else to run the practice. And we have two employees. So when you have such a small group, it's very easy to be flexible and to adapt to changing trends. And uh, that 
is, you know, another benefit of smaller practice, special solo practice. And that's one of the mm -hmm. things that would be harder to do with larger group just because it's like a big ship. You can't turn around quickly. Hey, it's, you know, uh, takes a lot more time and effort. Absolutely. So we're seeing, you know, there's these place for these super groups evolving and making a mark on the industry as well as some of the solo practices and those who, you know, really want to be serving patients in that way. There's still an opportunity for it. Dr. Redler, I love your impression as we see the market consolidate, but then also have pockets where these small practices can exist. Um, what is your impression of everything? How do you see orthopedics evolving? So, you know, I, I think that's a great question, and it's an interesting perspective that both Adam as well as Vladimir give is sort of one end of the spectrum to the other, and I'll fall somewhere in between. I, I think this consolidation is a good thing. You know, we uh, were a small to mid-sized practice, the Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center, and back in 2018, we merged with Connecticut Orthopedics, which is now the largest group in the state of Connecticut. Uh, if we look at this merger, we ask, why is this happening? And, and frankly, part of the reason it's happening is that you have to have finite size to maintain independence. And I think that that's one of the key factors here. You know, the small groups, except for specific niches, are going to have a hard time maintaining their footprint. I think that there's large hospital systems that are trying to employ physicians. And if you want to remain independent, if you want to be able to still run your own course, you need to have that finite size. And that's what, what it does. And, you know, Connecticut Orthopedics has done a great job for us. You know, they handle the IT, they handle all the business, they handle the negotiating. We can actually spend more time taking care of patients. And frankly, this was no more evident than during the pandemic when, you know, they navigated some challenging times regarding revenue, regarding patients, regarding having to furlough some employees and still maintain uh, an intact group. They've been able to get us up doing telemedicine. They've been able to allow us to really accelerate and be a big player with both patients, big player with insurance companies, and frankly, and I'm happy to say, not an employee of a hospital healthcare system. Absolutely. I think that seems to be a huge goal of a lot of orthopedic and spine surgeons today still, um, you know, is to have that independence and be able to stay, um, whether it's a larger group or a mid-sized group, um, just the, the owner, I guess, of their own destiny and practices. So when you look into the future, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of wheels in motion, whether it's health systems, payers, private equity, lots of players. What kinds of trends do you see driving um, just the healthcare ecosystem and how can private practices really make sure they're um, fortifying themselves to stay independent? Dr. Redler, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know you just talked a little bit about some of the things that you've been able to do during the pandemic and then going forward, you know, do you see kinetic orthopedics growing or are there other aspects and areas that you're hoping to expand um, to really make sure that you're in a good spot in the future? Well, look, I, I think that the trend of these larger groups is probably here to stay. And, and I think that what it allows is for the group to be more physician-centric. In other words, you're, you're concentrating more on the, what the physician needs to optimize their practice. Um, I think that what happens with a lot of physicians and surgeons that have gone and started working for hospital-based systems, it sounds like a great deal to start off with. It may be a great year for one deal for one deal, year or two, but all of a sudden, year three and beyond, it all becomes a matter of RVUs. Are you meeting your, your costs? And it becomes a different situation. So I think it's a good trend. 
It, it clearly is not for everybody, but if you look right now and you look at groups like Orthopedic Forum, you look at the very large groups, the largest groups are starting to be up to like 200 uh, orthopedic surgeons and physicians. And, and there's actually something that came out in Becker's just a few days ago, Laura, that talked about the largest groups. And, you know, you, you go down number 20 and still 73 orthopedic surgeons. So that's a trend that's going to stay, but I think it's going to allow us to maintain control of what we do as physicians, how we take care of patients, being able to stand up to insurance companies' restrictions and uh, put our patients' needs first. I think all are very excellent points. And Dr. Brueggemann, do you have anything to add in terms of you know other strategies or tactics that you'll be using to make sure that going forward, you're in the best position possible to stay independent? Yeah, I think Michael's statements are Perfect. And they're spot on. They're exactly how I feel. Uh, you know, an independent practice is what has to be maintained, whether we're talking as physicians who are providers within the system, or we're talking as patients who are ultimately consumers of the healthcare system. Uh, our physicians remaining independent and having the ability to make the right decision for their patients is critical to the success of the American healthcare system. So whatever the model looks like, whether it's any of the kind of variations that are out there from trying to stay in solo practice to uh, the largest of the large groups, as long as the doctors remain independent, I think that's critical. And I agree that I think it's gonna be here to stay because of the market pressures that are existing, because of the consolidation at the hospital level, the insurance level, there's really no choice but for the providers to consolidate to some degree. As far as where I, the only other thing I can say that I see really happening and I'm seeing more of this is as these groups consolidate, we're going to see groups behave somewhat more like the uh, insurance companies. In other words, they're going to become participants, strong participants in value-based care. And what that potentially could look like at the, at the highest level is taking responsibility for population health. Kinetic orthopedics could take responsibility for everything from the first injury to the surgery to the post-operative care uh, to the extent that they have that under one roof, as can other, some, some of the other larger groups within the United States. And so uh, there's tremendous opportunity for surgeons to truly hone their craft where they spend the majority of their time taking care of a small number of people who truly need surgery, but overseeing a team that takes care of the entire episode of care and by doing so can have tremendous revenue potential to the practice or to the group or however they're organized. So I do see <clears throat> the expansion of, of value-based care combined with the, the consolidation within the market could lead to an opportunity for you know, more accountable care organization or value-based care type uh, organizations within orthopedics. That's really interesting to think about. And so as a surgeon, maybe who traditionally just lived in the operating room and, and saw patients here or there, you know, that that person's changing to somebody who now has to think about the whole episode of care that someone that's arranging everything is more of like a quarterback of the system versus, you know, a, a very key and integral player um, within the team. Yeah, exactly. You know, as a, as a surgeon, if I were overseeing this team and I were responsible for every dollar that was spent, and a patient comes in with a very large disc herniation in their low back, I'm probably not going to waste my time with some of the treatments that we traditionally do under a prior authorization health insurance product. Uh, and we may go straight to the operating room and get that patient back faster and spend less money on some of the preoperative treatment 
and uh, go straight to the operating room. Same for, for Michael. Might, might say, hey, this patient's got an, a torn meniscus bucket handle. What are we doing waiting around? We're not doing anything else. Let's just go to the operating room, get it fixed. And I know this patient's going to do better if they go straight to the operating room. I don't need to go through all these other treatments that just don't make any sense. And so <clears throat> as surgeons, we would have the ability to oversee that care and then benefit when we're able to save the system money because we did the right thing for the right patient at the right time. That makes a ton of sense. Dr. Sinkoff, from your perspective, how do you see your practice growing and evolving in this space that's focused on value-based care, that's thinking so much about, you know, what is um, going to be crucial for people as they're consuming healthcare in the future and all those types of things? What do you really see as being your best opportunity to grow and evolve? Uh, well, I mean, what I do is fairly specific and probably not for every physician. This is just a niche that I've found and uh, feel that uh, we're very successful at, but uh, I agree probably for majority of physicians, the trend to consolidate will continue um, as, you know, they see the, the only kind of two pathways in the current system, which is completely become hospital employed and give up control, which obviously a lot of physicians, especially surgeons, prefer not to do, uh, or, you know, as a way to, quote unquote, survive in the current system, join a larger group where the uh, the worries of how to handle this changing market that is, uh, you know, basically requiring us to um, be more compliant with more regulations while kind of creating more of a population health environment as opposed to just treating patients. It gets overwhelming to surgeons, so they would rather have an organization that they join, take care of that so they can continue providing uh, care for patients. Uh, myself, uh, like I said, I decided, you know, there are a lot of way, reasons I do not like that trend. So I decided, okay, let's bring it back to the way it used to be where it was simply a physician and a patient and uh, there were no, no or as little as possible middle people in the um, in between the physician and the patient uh, to take care of them properly. Uh, obviously it's getting harder and harder to do in the current environment. So the way I, you know, kind of, uh, maintain what we do and uh, survive is, like I said, be, uh, staying small, staying nimble, um, having very low overhead because a lot of times what drives the physicians to consolidate is a desire to low overhead. Well, there is a way to really maintain low overhead and be efficient as well uh, if you're savvy enough at it uh, in a solo practice. And that's what allows us to be very flexible or allows us to kind of go through ups and downs without um, big financial hit to ourselves in the practice. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the only other way to survive as, you know, as a sole practice or small practice is to somehow differentiate yourself from a whole market. The way I treat patients, the way we do things in this practice is very different than most of the practices in town and in the United States in terms of how quickly we get back to patients how much time I spend per patient. You know, my patients all have my cell phone number. They don't abuse it because I have very low um, panel of patients, so to speak. So um, we provide something that is very special, which allows us to stay competitive. And, you know, as a small practice, I do not need a huge amount of patients to keep us afloat. Uh, and whatever patients, you know, we find, like I said, uh, we are, um, you know, booking out fairly, fairly far in advance. There's definitely a lot of um, uh, market a lot of desire for what we have to offer uh, because we're so different than uh, many orthopedic practices. 
That's great to hear. And, you know, I, I'm thinking about just everything we've discussed today um, and different types of practice models and, and philosophies on where healthcare is going. And one of the things I want to zero in on now is thinking about private equity. Um, I, I know that it's been a little bit more active over the past year, year and a half than it had been before, especially in the orthopedics space. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, you know, how do you see private equity really evolving in orthopedics. Um, Dr. Brueggemann, I want to hear from you first. And will this be a helpful or harmful trend long-term to the specialty? Yeah, you know, I think um, with the Orthopedic Academy, we're really struggling as a group to really define our response as, a, as, a, as practicing providers. On one hand, you're talking about significant capital inflow to groups to allow them to uh, do things that potentially they couldn't have done without that capital inflow. But on the other hand, all of our metrics suggest that as groups consolidate, as private equity comes in, the focus shifts towards dollars and away from good patient care. And it actually becomes more expensive. And in many cases, not uh, the quality tends to go down. And so <clears throat> how can we balance uh, the need for continued capital infusion into the healthcare market and at the same time, maintain the independence and the focus on patient care. And I think, you know, no one has that figured out just yet. Everyone's trying different ways to handle that. You see that private equity groups or large acquisition groups are now talking about, as, as has been written about many times on Becker's, uh, man management services organizations or other ways to partner with the physicians, trying to remove some of these financial and economic incentives that may not align with the best interests of patient care. And so I, I will tell you just as an anecdote in my community, we're now rationing surgical care after a large takeover from a private equity group of the anesthesia group in town. And, uh, you know, I have to call the day before surgery and find out whether or not we have coverage for surgery. And I potentially have to call my patients the next day and say, I'm sorry, there were more surgeries booked than we have anesthesiologists in this community because, oh, frankly, a, a big chunk of them retired or left as a result of the takeover. And so we, we have to really be conscious of what we're doing uh, because this, these are lives at stake. These are surgeries that aren't being done. These are our family members and our friends who are not getting the treatment they need, potentially because of these interventions. While they have some significant potential upside, we have to be very, very careful about how we allow private equity into the healthcare business. That's fascinating. So your group did not decide to take on any private equity investment, but we're still impacted because the anesthesiology group came in and, you know, once the investors came in, just had such a big impact on the community and, and how the group was operating. Correct. We've got anesthesiologists, COVID happened, so we've got retirements happening at the same time. So there's a lot of factors at play, but uh, but we had a lot of doctors who either quit practice altogether at a very young age in their 40s, uh, moved to other cities to practice, to ride out non-competes. Um, so a variety of things that have really hurt the kind of the mainstay treatment within our community. So again, it's one example of we need to be very, very careful about how we handle private equity in this market. That makes a ton of sense. Dr. Redler, I wanted to get your perspective as well, because I know you've been in orthopedics a long time and I've seen many trends ebb and flow. Uh, so when you look at private equity, um, what are some of the things that you think about um, and see at groups that have evolved over many years and are large groups, quite frankly, taking on private equity? What does that make you think? Yeah, I think Adam makes great points. And I think, listen, 
you see these private equity groups come in, you know, you see the, the, the dollar signs there, the potential for a payout from, you know, monetizing a practice. It sounds great. But the reality is, I think the things you have to think about, one, what's the makeup of your group? Is it a homogeneous group? And what I mean by that is a private equity group coming in and you being able to monetize and cash out part of your practice may be very attractive for those that perhaps have a few years of practice and want to retire. What about the young guys? And what about the guys that still have a lot of years left in practice? And that same uh, level of benefit may not be the case. Then the other question you got to ask, what's the private equity group's endgame? And think about that for a second. Are they planning just to stay with you? Are they trying to just increase your value and sell them yourself off to another uh, private equity group? Are they going to sell you off to a hospital care system? Think about those things long and hard. What do they want to do? Do they want to just keep your real estate? So there's a lot of different uh, end games that you have to consider, and you got to consider your whole group. I mean, if, you, if you're a large group together, you're still a big team, and you got to think of what's going to benefit every person in that group, and the answer may not be the same. So the, the short-term gain and attractiveness um, may not be the result that you want in the long term. And I think you got to think about that ahead of time before you get into it. And, and I think once you do that, it may well be that just larger groups where you can invest in great CEOs and great CFOs and great IT managers may do just as well to allow better patient access and, and better care ultimately for your patients. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense. And really, you know, it lays out perfectly kind of the um, things that you must consider when you're confronted with this potential investment, um, you know, and thinking long term. It sounds like Dr. Brueggemann and Dr. Redler, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but in, in thinking about the trend just on a macro level, um, it, it could have a net negative for orthopedics and spine, you know, going forward. Um, Dr. Sinkov, is that kind of your impression as well? Or is there anything else you wanted to add? No, basically, I would agree with the other two doctors. I mean, I basically, think of it simply. If a uh, private investment firm wants to invest into a business and basically own it, uh, really the only reason they will do it is to earn money. There's, I mean, unfortunately, you know, sorry to break it down, but there's really no other reason or desire for them to try and buy a group. It is simply to make money. Uh, I would like to think for myself, and I'm sure by far vast majority of doctors, we did not simply go into medicine to make money. There were other, a lot more uh, kind of humanitarian and altruistic uh, reasons for that. Uh, and then uh, if you sell your practice to a boss that simply wants to monetize it, um, you, you're bound to at least partially lose your ability to provide what's best for the patient because there will now be pressure from somebody who now owns you in your practice to um, uh, you know, th there will be a conflict of interest to try and maximize the profit. And obviously they will try to do it in the most legal and ethical way possible. But at the end of the day, they will only be responsible to their shareholders. They've never taken a Hippocratic oath. Uh, they will not be there for a patient. And, um, you know, as an independent physician practice, you can still maintain it while staying profitable and financially successful. Once you become part of a investment company that simply wants to make money, it'll be harder to do and there'll be pressures to go the other way, so to speak. So, I mean, if anything, I would, you know, if somebody's uh, considering doing that, I'll probably give them a recommendation to uh, you know, become part of a hospital system where there's still a lot more checks and balances than when they 
um, you know, absolutely neutral private investment firm takes over your practice. So um, I do not think it's a good care, uh, patient care. I don't think it's good for patients, which is really the main reason we're here. Um, I understand the financial pressure, pressures uh, and need for capital may be where this would be very tempting, but uh, if at all possible, I would recommend finding other ways to um, do that rather than um, uh, sell the practice to a private equity. That's interesting. So you'd rather have uh, doctors go and join the hospital versus taking on private equity if they're not able to sustain the independence um, as, as a better option for the patients in their practice. As a, least, a lesser of the two evils, that's the... Yeah, got answer. it. <laughs> you know, Laura, I, I think what, what would really be kind of a... that kind of brings us all together is the fact that we've talked a lot about hospitals employing people, but recall that uh, some of the largest employers are is or one of the largest employers is Optum, which is a division of United Healthcare, and and I think we're at this crossroads right now where the insurance companies really have to decide what they want to do, because the introduction of hospital ownership and private equity is going to, without a doubt, drive up the cost of care, and that means that insurance companies are going to be paying more money, and that means they're going to have to raise their rates or find other ways to make this work, and. Frankly, they're all publicly traded, so they need to make more money this year than they did last year or their stock drops. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're at this point where it's the, the groups are consolidating, doctors are, are potentially looking at private equity or becoming employed by healthcare systems. Uh, insurance companies will have, either have to decide to, to become very, very aggressive in employment models to try and take control of this or decide to partner with physicians and say, you know, private equity coming in is bad for our bottom line. Hospitals owning you is bad for our bottom line. Consolidation in the market is bad for our bottom line. The only way this works is if the insurance companies own it from top to bottom and vertically integrate, or they decide they wanna work with physicians again and come back around and say, you know, we've really taken the screws to reimbursement for the last several decades. We kind of need to reverse this trend or we're never going to have a healthcare system again. It's not, you know, that, that it, it includes current healthcare, health insurance companies. And I, I think that's really where we are at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's such an excellent analysis. And, you know, down the road at some point, if an insurance company to you, came to you and said, hey, we want to make a Texas Spine Care Center, a, you know, a partner of ours, or um, we'd like to make you an offer, would you seriously consider it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think <laughs> on the spot here. I'm sorry. Probably, I, I think right now, if you ask most most uh, physicians, insurance is probably the least liked person on the planet. And so, I think none of us, I, I think most people would rather work for a healthcare system than work for an insurance company. Would rather work even or sell partially to private equity than go work for a health insurance company. And so, it, it just is the mentality of kind of this back and forth and and fighting that's been ongoing for decades and reduction in reimbursement. So. I don't think that physicians trust insurance companies. I probably would go and look for my other options because historically insurance companies have done anything but been beneficial to us as practice as practicing providers. You know, Adam, one thing I would say about that, and, and, I, and I, I hear where you're coming from loud and clear. I, I don't think that any of us want to work for insurance companies, but I think that there may be a symbiotic relationship where if we try to lead to the best patient care, uh, by working with them. What I mean by that, well, for instance, I know, and, and, and you, you brought up United Healthcare before, but I can tell you right now, if I do an ACL reconstruction or if I do a high acuity case at our surgical center, 
where the costs are going to be low. Not only uh, will United Healthcare, uh, you know, uh, support that, they'll also pay me a higher physician's fee for doing so there as well. So it's an example whereby you can get the best possible care at a high quality ambulatory surgical center, not uh, be driven to the hospital, not be working with the hospital, but also increase physician fee because you're bringing it to a lower cost, high quality provider. So I think that's just one example and I don't wanna single out any insurance company, but the bottom line is there are ways that you can work with insurance companies to lead to the best patient care and the best possible setting. Um, and, and hopefully uh, in the spirit of uh, great patient care and outcome, maybe there's some common ground where you can work together. If I and may I, interject. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was gonna say, I totally agree. And I, I think that's this is where we are. This is our crossroads. Does insurance truly wanna work with us? Because I think they don't have a choice but to come up with creative strategies like driving cases to ambulatory surgery centers or single uh, single site payments, uh, site neutral payments. In other words, they pay one amount regardless of where the procedure gets done. Uh, population health, value-based care, all options where physicians can stand to make more money uh, and also drive costs down in partnership with insurance companies. And so it'll be interesting to see whether that takes off as private equity pressures continue to increase within orthopedic spine uh, practices. Absolutely. Um, if I, I may you... add, um, uh, my kind of take on insurance companies, just kind of stand back, stay back and kind of look at the big picture. Um, you know, it is very popular among physicians, among, you know, people in general in the United States to, you know, blame insurance companies for running the healthcare, so to speak, or, you know, uh, say insurances do that, insurance that. We, we have to keep in mind that Insurance companies from very onset were simply for-profit organizations that tried to make money by managing risks. Uh, it didn't start in healthcare. The first insurance companies were uh, insuring ships in uh, Britain, Lloyds of London, um, and kind of it continued from there. Uh, one thing to you know remind all the physicians that technically speaking, the only way insurances, including Medicare, can continue doing what we do, what they're doing, is if we as physicians allow them to do. No insurance company, no Medicare has ever forced a physician to sign a contract or do anything. All of us have signed their contracts voluntarily after hopefully having read them, but then we'll go back and complain that they lower reimbursements, but then we keep re-signing those contracts every year while the reimbursement either lower or they keep it the same, but don't keep it up with inflation. Uh, technically speaking, we as physicians are in full control of the entire United States, United States healthcare system, which is now over $3.5 trillion. Without us as physicians writing orders and stating that something is medically necessary, none of the rest of the system can move at all. Uh, physicians' reimbursement is, last time I checked, less than 10% of that overall dollar amount, but we technically control all of that because without us, none of it will happen. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I, I wish physicians would kind of uh, more support each other in terms of fighting, so to speak, the insurance companies, or at least not allowing them to tell us what to do, uh, rather than, okay, I will sign that contract in hopes that the other group will not get that contract. And, uh, you know, all the insurance companies are doing it, dividing and conquering and laughing all the way to the bank. But, you know, technically speaking, it is within our power if we choose to work together instead of competing with each other as physicians. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've all made excellent points in terms of 
um, physicians and insurance companies for various reasons want the same thing, the independent physician and the physician to be able to provide great care. It's just not always seeing eye to eye or being able to um, create that environment to do that. So it'll be interesting to see how that all evolves. And, you know, uh, Dr. Brueggemann, Dr. Redler, Dr. Sinkov, uh, with the physician front and center, I think seems to be the best way moving forward. So um, before we wrap up this panel and conversation, just really quick, I wanted to pose one more question. How do you all think orthopedics and the landscape will look differently one year from today? Will any of this make a, um, you know, be able to have an impact going forward one year or is it more of a five-year outlook? What do you really see as being um, some of the big, I guess, ways that orthopedics could be different one year from today? And Dr. Rudler, I'd like to start with you. Well, look, I, I think that we see trends in hand, and there are those orthopedic groups, just as you suggested, Laura, that are going towards a private equity group. There are a lot of young physicians that are coming out now who don't want the headache of business that are just going to work for a hospital care system. And then there's that big uh, set of groups in the middle that are merging to create mega groups. And look, I think that what Vladimir says is very true, that, you know, if physicians aren't banding together, then, then this doesn't give us any type of clout. We know the physicians have been probably the worst ever in terms of working together as bigger groups. And I think that the reality is the substitute for that probably is going to be these larger mega groups whereby they're just too large to ignore. They're too large for the insurance companies to ignore, and they're going to be too large for the healthcare systems to exclude. And so I think that that's the trend that's going to continue. I think that you're going to probably ultimately see that private equity is going to be a short-term solution, fall by the wayside. There's going to be those that have profited and a lot that are going to be sorry that they uh, joined together. And, and hopefully what we can ultimately do is by creating and having that clout of groups together to put what we all want to do first. We want to take great care of patients and want to take care of great care of patients. And we all want to make a good living doing so. We want our time to be valued. I think that that ultimately is going to be the solution. Thank you, Dr. Redler. Dr. Sinkov, I love your thoughts. Uh, final word here. Um, so uh, coming back to the question of uh, trend, I, you know, Probably the current trend will continue year from now. I really doubt it's going to be significantly different. The pressures are still there. The inflation is going up. Reimbursement is not going up. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, the Medicare changed the way they pay for office visits. They uh, kind of changed all their codes and RVUs of the codes uh, in 2021. Uh, most of the insurance companies, last time I checked, did not change theirs, and they're still paying by the way they were paying if they're based off percentage of Medicare, same way they did in 2020, basically, they will not adjust contracts uh, in a way that is in any way beneficial to the um, physicians. Medicare itself, we're right now on the edge of another um, eight to 9% cut, uh, which may be legislated, kick the can down the road again or not. Uh, so there are huge financial pressures for physicians to stay alive. And you know the easiest way to do that, and for the most physicians, probably the most logical way to do it is to consolidate. So it will definitely continue, and I uh, definitely agree and uh, hope that uh, private equity will be more of a transient trend, not a long-term solution, just because long-term, once again, it's um, um, there's too much of cognitive interest of private equity uh, firm and the physicians themselves taking care of their patients. Uh, private equities have tried to do the same thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. There were a lot of consolidations and buying up of uh, uh, physician practices happened at the time. It crashed, it did not work. So, you know, they're trying it again, but I uh, have a feeling that once again, 
people realize that that's not the best way to run practices, but consolidation among practices will probably continue. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. And Dr. Brueggemann, I'd love for you to take us home. What is your final thought on where the future is going? Yeah, I mean, I think I echo a lot of the same thoughts that Michael and Vladimir said. We aren't going to see major changes in the next 12 months. These are these are larger, more macroeconomic changes that are occurring within the system that will probably play out over the next three to five years. I do think and I do expect that some of the larger groups in orthopedics will uh, ultimately either partner with uh, private equity or these management services organizations. I expect to see one or two of them go this year um, that have not been announced yet. Uh, and so I, I do think we'll continue to see these types of consolidations and mergers occur in, in private equity involvement. I think really the question is, what does this look like in the next three to five years? And is this a, a short-term trend that goes away or is this a longer-term trend within healthcare? Well, Dr. Brueggemann, Dr. Redler, Dr. Sinkoff, thank you for being here today. This has been a fascinating discussion, and we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.